we went over to Newark from Elizabeth to meet Effa Manley. I will never forget as long as I live. <laughs> this beautiful lady came down this flight of stairs to her basement where she had her office in this pink negligee outfit. I will never forget Effa Manley. She was an outstanding, beautiful woman. Former Newark Eagles pitcher and 1956 National League MVP, Don Newcomb. And she said, Don, do you want to play baseball? I said, yes, Mrs. Man, I'd love to play if, if I can get a chance. She said, I'll tell you what I do. I'll give you $175 a month, and I'll take you to training camp. I had never known that I could ever make $175 playing baseball. She gave me a contract for $175 a month. But I didn't know they knew anything about me. Mrs. Manning knew about me, but I didn't know she knew about me. Hearing Don Newcomb relate that incredible story of meeting Effa Manley reminds me of several years ago when we pulled together a team of professional artists to create original works of art inspired by the Negro Leagues for a groundbreaking exhibition that we call Shades of Greatness. And one of the female artists was so enamored by this story and was so moved and inspired by this story, she took that story and put it on canvas. And it's a beautiful painting. And in the painting, you can see a young Don Newcomb sitting at the table looking up at a spiral staircase as Effa Manley is standing at the top of the spiral staircase. And she's wearing a beautiful red evening gown. And the artist aptly entitled the piece, Signing Bonus. And, and it was absolutely perfect. And it is touring today as part of an epic art exhibition called Shades of Greatness. You can't make this stuff up. It's just too good. And this is where we begin the story of the Queen of the Negro Leagues, Effa Manley. The title's A Furious Woman. It was the editorialist day. Unless you were a fan of the former Negro Leagues, you probably never heard of Effa Manley. But she ranks in the history of the game with such women as Helen Hathaway Britton, president of the Cardinals in 1916, Joan W. Payson, late owner of the Mets, and Mrs. Payson's daughter, Linda DeRusso, now the president of the club. One of those seemingly just too good to be true stories is the amazing story of Effa Manley, an incredible woman who, along with her husband, Abe, owned the Newark Eagles. In the foreword of Jim Overmeyer's powerful biography, Effa Manley, the Queen of the Negro Leagues, I wrote this. There was always a certain mystique about Effa Manley, an admired level of sophistication and savoir-faire. She was poised and polished, regal and refined. Yet underneath that veil of social grace and grandeur was a smart and tenacious competitor with a dogged determination to win. Effa brought that tenacity to the table as she squared off, often as a lone voice against her male counterparts. For some owners, her business savvy ingratiated her while others were infuriated. She was considered a know-it-all who was out of her league. How dare she try to bring new ideas to an old school, good old boys game. After all, baseball was a man's world. Or was it? Oh, contraire. Quite simply, Effa knew the business of baseball as well as any man. And that rubbed a lot of the fellas wrong, and she didn't care. Instead, Effa went about her business of building the Eagles into a model baseball franchise. She may not have garnered their acceptance, but she earned their respect. And it all started in 1935 with Effa and her husband, Abe, who met at a New York Yankees game of all places, fell in love and were married and would eventually buy the Newark Eagles where Mrs. Manley took control of the day-to-day -day operations of that baseball business. The late Effa Manley, recorded in 1977, courtesy of the Nunn Center at the University of Kentucky. My husband was the one who really became interested in the baseball. I knew nothing at all about 
baseball at that time. And Abe just decided he wanted to see Negro baseball organized. There were 12 Negro baseball teams operating all over the country, depending entirely on booking agents. And they were magnificent teams. Homestead Grays, Kansas and Moss, Birmingham Black Barons, Chicago American Giants, all great teams that continued to operate until the baseball was finally wrecked. So Abe was interested enough to want to see them organize into a league. And he got five of the teams in the East to go along with him and set up the Negro National League on condition that he would operate a team out of Brooklyn, Ebbets Field, the Dodgers' home park. And the Dodger people were very nice about renting us the place on no flat rate, just a percentage of whatever we drew in at the gate, which was very nice, because if they demanded a certain amount, we might. So Abe got these um, five teams to go along with. They each gave him two players, and uh, he was able to get the rest of the players together, and that's how the Newark Eagles were born. And we drew so poorly in Brooklyn that year that the next year we moved to Newark. Now, I meant I should have said that's how the Brooklyn Eagles were born. But the next year we moved to Newark and we stayed there for the rest of the time, 1945. Effa Manley had a tremendous eye for talent and was a spirited negotiator. Just looking at some of the Hall of Fame talent that called the Newark Eagles home. Ray Dandridge, Leon Day, Larry Doby, Monty Irvin, Raleigh Biz Mackey, Mule Suttles, and Willie Wells. And that's not to mention another tier of great players that included Jimmy Hill, Dick Say, Pat Patterson, and the late great Don Newcomb. And I still don't call him my dad and my oldest brother, Roland and waited for the bus that the Newark Eagles are on called the Blue Goose. And I got on that Blue Goose, and now I was on a team with Lenny Pearson, Len Hooker, Terrence McDuffie, Willie Wells, to name a few of the then Mm -hmm. Newark Eagles. Amazing congregation of talent, which was part of the reason that the Newark Eagles really took off and became contenders in the Negro Leagues and ultimately winning the 1946 Negro League World Series and breaking the heart of my good friend, the legendary Buck O'Neill, as the Eagles defeated the Kansas City Monarchs in a thrilling seven-game series where Leon Day made a spectacular diving catch. Now, this is the same Leon Day that is in the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a pitcher. But in this instance, Leon Day is playing center field. And Buck hit what he thought was the game winner. And Leon Day, out of nowhere, makes this spectacular diving catch to save the game and the series for the Newark Eagles and took away a parade and a fanfare from my friend Buck O'Neill, which is why I believe that Buck swore to the day he died that Leon Day was a better center fielder than he was pitcher. And folks, he's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a pitcher. Off the field, Effa was working her magic with the Newark Eagles team, and it speaks again to her marketing and business savvy. So not only was she responsible for operating the team, she negotiated contracts. She made deals with booking agents and other owners. She was scheduling games, equipment and uniforms and players' health. She even bought the first air-conditioned bus in the Negro Leagues, something that I remember my friend Monty Irvin speaking quite fondly about, the old blue goose that Don Newcomb referenced made life a little bit more comfortable on the road for her Newark Eagles players. And I think it further endeared them to their great owner. Little by little, I found myself doing more and more. 
And I finally just ended up completely involved. And there's no question that, that my final title after a very short time was business manager. And that's what I did. I drew up the schedules, bought the equipment. We, and we only used the finest equipment. Our uniforms were manufactured by the same people that made them for the majors. You had to arrange for the ball players' hotel accommodations before they left on a trip. And there were an awful lot of little things like that that I took care of. Effa Manley is one of the most interesting character studies out of a bunch of interesting character studies that make up the amazing story of the Negro Leagues. First, you have the uncertainty of her ethnicity. There are those who believe that she was biracial, that her mother was white and her father was a black man. There are others who believe that she was the byproduct of an affair that her mother had with a white man. Irregardless of what others may think, Effa Manley gravitated to black culture at a time when being black wasn't necessarily the most popular thing that you could do. And she was revered in the African-American community. And yet she was also savvy enough to use her whiteness when it would allow her to get a hotel room where others couldn't or to do some other things in social life that maybe darker-skinned Black folks couldn't have. And, and so whether she was Black or white, it makes for an even more interesting story because beneath the complexities of her skin complexion, where even to this day, the debate rages on whether she was Black or white, was a woman who was clearly comfortable in her own skin. She seamlessly and fearlessly morphed between both worlds, taking advantage of opportunities that her whiteness afforded her while bringing a soulful spirit that put her at the front of social causes in the African-American community. Hear it in her own words. So I am really white, but I have come up as a Negro. Due to the fact all my brothers and sisters were Negroes, I remember once, Funniest thing how I remember it, when I was very young, in the first grade, the principal sent for me. At that time, Negroes and whites just weren't supposed to mix. That was, well, it's about 70 years ago. I'm 77 now. And she sent for me to ask me why I was always with these colored children. And when I went back home and told them, I didn't know what to say to her. I went back and told Mother, I always felt how stupidly mother reacted. I feel she should have made some effort to talk to the principal or something, explain things. But mother said to me, you go back and tell her you're just as white as she is. Well, that was ridiculous. But I'm saying, telling you this to say I have come up in this entirely Negro atmosphere. Former Newark Eagles outfielder, Hall of Famer Monty Irvin, recorded in 1977. You know, she's, she's just a dynamic baseball person. She had a uh, a lot of good ideas, and uh, you know, I wonder what would have happened if uh, some of the uh, owners had listened to, you know, some of the ideas that she had because they wanted to really organize and become strong and have a real strong, solidly. And if if, uh, if they had gotten it to that point, then the major leagues would have had a little trouble getting the black players. In other words, uh, they might have gotten them, but they would have had to pay money for them. I found it tremendously interesting that as Branch Rickey was purported to be creating his own version of a Negro Leagues, United States Baseball League, that he either felt like Effa Manley was an impediment or that he needed Effa Manley as an ally. And I'm not sure which, but it does speak to the respect that Effa Manley had garnered in this male-dominated world of baseball, that she was the one tapped by Ricky to discuss his plans. Even over some of her better-known male counterparts who had been involved with the Negro Leagues for quite some time. 
I happen to believe that Ricky saw her as an impediment, that Ricky never really had desire to create his own version of a Negro Leagues, that Ricky's motivation the entire time was to siphon this great black talent out of the Negro Leagues. And he needed a voice that would allow him to maneuver the way that he felt he needed to. And I think he thought that Effa Manley would go along for the ride. But he had the wrong one. Effa was defiantly against this notion of an alternative baseball league. And she essentially shot that notion down right away. I received a phone call in my office from Branch Ricky's secretary asking me would I attend a meeting at the Dodgers or Mr. Ricky wanted me to come to a meeting this day. And I, of course, I told you they were lovely to us first year we played in the park and no reason worldwide. And so I proceeded to go to the meeting and I was the only owner of a Negro team that had been invited. All the newspapers, black and white, were there. There must have been, no. Oh, I don't know, 30, 40, I don't know how many, but I was the only owner of a Negro team. And Mr. Ricky took his seat at his desk and proceeded to read from his paper that he was establishing a Negro baseball league, the United States League. And he read at length all the details and information. When he was finished, he asked for questions. So when it came my time, I spoke and I said to him, well, Mr. Ricky, if you were this interested in Negro baseball, why in the world didn't you contact our two leagues that have been operating so many years? It was just such a startling thing. So as soon as I returned home, I got on the phone and started calling all the owners of the Negro teams and told them what had happened and what was their reaction. So the reaction of all of the owners was, Ricky couldn't take our parks from us. Where would he play? His United States League wouldn't have any place to play but his park. So, Mr. Ricky, he, that was true. The owners were right about that. He couldn't take our parks. So his United States League didn't last any time at all. But that was when he decided he'd just take the ball there. So he just completely outmaneuvered us outsmarted us or just plain raped us. I don't know what you'd say, how you'd describe it. Now, was Branch Rickey's real motivation to sign black players? I think it was. And I get the impression that Effa Manley likely thought it was, too. And uh, she gets in the way of this master plan of Ricky. Because Ricky had tried to sign her star player, the great Monty Irvin. Monty Irvin was a superstar player. I've oftentimes said that I wish Major League Baseball had gotten Monty Irvin when he was 19, 20, 21 years old because there was absolutely nothing that this dynamic player could not do. He had star quality written all over him. Five-tool dynamic player with movie star good looks. So yeah, he was a budding star in the making. And Monty Irvin was the Negro League's owner's choice that if someone was going to break the color barrier, that it should be Monty Irvin because he had the exact same pedigree that made Jackie Robinson the right choice. Monty Irvin, too, was college educated. He had served in the military. And so those qualities that made Robinson successful, Monty Irvin had them. But what Monty Irvin also had was actually better baseball ability than Jackie Robinson. But there was one stumbling block in this equation, and her name was Effa Manley. Now, you got to keep in mind, it wasn't necessary that the owners were advocating for integration because this was their business. 
This would be going against their own business interest. They are stuck between a rock, that proverbial rock, and a hard place because black folks were clamoring for the day that a black man would play in the major leagues. Yet black owners were trying to protect their business interest. Effa Manley was also right smack in the middle. And so she blocked Monty Irvin's attempt to sign with the Brooklyn Dodgers and was prepared to fight Branch Rickey if he tried to proceed with this signing. But then Effa Manley, not wanting to derail Monty Irvin's dream of playing in the major leagues, would eventually negotiate a deal with Ricky's crosstown rivals, Horace Stoneham's New York Giants. Monty Irvin. I signed with the, like you said, with the, with the Dodgers. And then Branch Ricky and Mrs. Manley, who was, uh, you know, the wife of the owner, they couldn't get together on, on money, on price. Uh, she said she was going to take them to court unless she got some money for, for my services. He thought that maybe the bad publicity that he would have gotten if he tried to sign me uh, wouldn't would be worth it. So uh, he released my you know my contract. He just uh, but what he did do, uh, I think he made a call over to Harstone saying that uh, that I looked uh, you know like looked good and if he wanted a, uh, if he wanted an opportunity to sign a, a black player, and Monty Irvin would be a pretty good one for you to sign. F. A. Manley. I do feel it was an unfair approach. I feel that it should have been handled much differently. But and as I told you, we had we few who had talked about it had agreed that if they'd asked us, Monty is the boy, we would have Monty could do everything. And as I told you, that arm of his was exceptional. He just had one of those magnificent arms. And, uh, and he was a gentleman, and he was well educated. Uh, Robinson was no better educated. I've, heard, I've had people say, well, Robinson had, was going to college. Monty had as much education as Robinson. Well, there was no, no superiority there in the Robinson thing. Ricky ultimately signs Jackie Robinson, or as I like to say, took Jackie Robinson away from the Kansas City Monarchs. And later that year in 1945, he essentially did the same thing to Effa Manley when he came in and took Don Newcomb away from Effa Manley's Newark Eagles. Needless to say, this ruffled the feathers of Mrs. Manley. And I think it caused her to dig in even deeper as she now knew that she was fighting for survival. You know, they took those three... Negro ball players from our Negro baseball and didn't give us five cents or say thank you. Jackie Robinson, Roy Conrad and Don Newcomb. Plus, he took Newcomb from me, so I know what I'm talking about. And we couldn't protest. The fans would have never forgiven us. Plus, it would have been wrong to prevent them from going to the majors. But I told you I had tried to get the majors to take us as farm teams, but they still weren't, didn't want the Negro ball players, and you can see why um, their their excuse was the Negroes weren't good enough. So they've only gone to the majors and proceeded to break all records. Even as the walls of the Negro leagues were starting to fall apart, Effa Manley's defiant spirit, however, kept her right in the middle of an embroiled battle to fight for her livelihood, and for the success of these black players as they were about to move into Major League Baseball. And so when Bill Vett comes calling and wants to sign Larry Doby away from Effa Manley, his original offer was $5,000. And I think Effa Manley fully understood that she had lost her leverage and eventually, Bill Vec offered $10,000. And Effa Manley's response <laughs> was very poignant and right on the money. Because had Larry Doby been white, as she related to, to Bill Vec, 
that sum of $10,000 would have been $100,000. And what she ultimately did for Larry Doby was have Bill Veck promise not to pay him less than major league salaries because Branch Rickey had done just that. Monty Irvin was making $6,000 a month with the Newark Eagles. He signed for $1,000 less than what he was making with the Newark Eagles. And and Effa wanted to protect and make sure that these other black ball players would not be taken advantage of. And she did just that. In the case of Doby, when uh, when Beck called, Abe told me that Beck was going to call because Beck's head scout had been scouting Negro baseball ever since the integration happened and had decided that Doby was the best looking of all the, the Negro players. And Abe had come one day and said to me, you're going to get a call any day from Bill Beck. He wants Doby. So well, sure enough, the next day Beck called. And I said, well, what did you plan to give me for him? He said, well, I plan to give you $10,000. I said, well, I'm not a millionaire, but I am financially secure, I think. And $10,000 looks like 10 cents. I know very well if that was a white boy and a free agent, you'd give him 100000 He says, well, if I give him 30 days, I'll give you five more. I said, well, anything you give me, I'll appreciate And I remember the last thing I said to Doby, I said, Doby, keep hitting the ball at the park. <laughs> I said, important thing everybody wants to see is a home run. As influential as Effa Manley's role in baseball became, her influence beyond the field was equally impressive. Her dedication to the civil rights movement and social activism endeared her in Newark's African-American community. Whether it was supporting groundbreaking boycott efforts like the Don't Buy Where You Can't Work movement, or making power moves like teaming with the Citizens League for Fair Play, where she organized a 1934 boycott of stores that refused to hire black sales clerks. Effa was a power hitter for positive change. And for the record, that Effa-led boycott led to some 300 stores in Harlem hiring black clerks. While operating in a man's world of professional baseball certainly presented its challenges, the fact that Effa Manley became a prominent player in the hierarchy of the Negro League speaks volumes about a league that championed an inclusive mindset by opening its doors to players of all colors and women. It's appropriate and honorable to tip our collective caps to Minnie Forbes and Olivia Taylor for their pioneering role into those baseball-playing, trailblazing women, Tony Stone, Mamie Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan, who we'll tell you more about in future episodes. Effa Manley rolled up her sleeves and fought the establishment the way that men typically fought the establishment. But she did so with style, grace, and class, as Effa Manley did virtually everything with style, grace, and class. And so she would celebrate her defiancy of keeping Monty Irvin away from Branch Rickley's Brooklyn Dodgers by buying herself a mink coat after negotiating a deal to sell Monty Irvin to Ricky's crosstown rivals, the New York Giants, befitting for the Queen. Effa Manley's story is complex and impactful. It's an unlikely story of a woman who moved into a male-dominated world and dominated that world. Her groundbreaking career would take her to the pinnacle of baseball success as she became the first woman to be nominated and inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 2006. All hail the Queen. Coming up next, a conversation with the author of The Queen of the Negro Leagues, Effa Manley and the Newark Eagles, biographer Jim Overmeyer. 
Interviews with Effa Manley and Monty Irvin in this episode of Black Diamonds are presented courtesy of the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History, University of Kentucky Libraries. Major League Baseball on Sirius XM is a fan's field of dreams. I can hear every game. From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? There's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. This summer, experience Negro Leagues 101, a celebration of the 101st anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. For more information, plus event schedules, video exhibits, and safety guidelines, visit nlbm.com and follow the museum on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC and follow Bob at NLBMPrez. Well, I'm thrilled to have joining me on Black Diamonds author, writer, Jim Overmeyer, who has penned one of the most interesting introspective looks at one of the most interesting figures, I think, in Negro League's history, and that being Effa Manley. Jim, welcome to the show. Good to be here. I think when we start to examine Effa Manley and the impact that she had, and the first, obviously, the obvious comes to mind, here is this woman operating in a male-dominated world, baseball. And having to try and earn the respect of the fellas who didn't take too kindly to what they would sometimes look at as this meddlesome woman who thinks she knows about baseball. She had this relationship with Cumberland Posey, the owner of the Homestead Grays. And it was an antagonistic relationship. Although if you look at their careers, they really were a lot alike. They wanted good management. They wanted good publicity. They wanted uh, all the things you ought to have to run a business well. But boy, I mean, Posey, I think, was a little, you know, he was a little misogynistic and just didn't like being pushed around. So they fought like cats and dogs, even though they were on the same side a lot of the time. He found her very hard to put up with. On the other hand, she was very good at administration and finance. And uh, when they wanted somebody to carry out a mission, like organize Army-Navy relief games during World War II and go to the East-West All-Star Game in Chicago when there was some suspicion that the Negro National League was getting shorted on the proceeds and sort of stand over the uh, division of of the spoils, they sent her. You know, they didn't like dealing with her face to face, but they were not opposed to sending her out to do these sort of difficult jobs that a good administrative person could do. So they looked at her two different ways. They they, they looked down upon her somewhat because she's a woman, but, oh, she's got these talents. Well, we'll send her out on these missions, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I find that interesting. Yeah, they, while they were sometimes chagrined over her role and involvement, yet they needed what she had, and that was a knowledge base that actually helped benefit the league. And, and so it's an interesting juxtaposition in itself. Well, she was, um, she was never a league officer, as you can well imagine. But her husband, Abe Manley, the co-owner of the Newark Eagles, everybody liked Abe. And personally, uh, as far as his outlook on how the league should be run and how baseball should be run. He and Effa agreed. If they ever seriously disagreed, I could never find any evidence of it in correspondence or interviews or anything. But everybody liked Dave. He was a good old boy. He loved his sports. So they elected him treasurer of the league over and over and over. But Abe, he had no interest in administration. He had none whatsoever. Well, who was the treasurer of the league? His wife, de facto treasurer of the league. It's not, it's not like they sent in their league payments or expense accounts to Abe and Abbott. They just sent them to Ethel. Everybody knew Ethel was in charge. 
going back and looking at Effa, particularly from an early life perspective, mm. in your opinion, was she white or was she black? Um, the answer is yes. <laughs> we well, you know, she brought this up. Why? Why do I and a few and a handful of other manly family members and a couple of other Negro League researchers keep beating our heads against the wall? Well, she started it. She told a story late in life that her mother, when she was a kid, and there's two different versions: one when she was in grade school and one when she was in high school. And it doesn't really matter that her mother told her she was, despite the fact they were living in the black community in Philadelphia, that she was white because her mother had an affair with a white businessman. Well, Alpha, you started this, so <laughs> we're going to try to figure it out. But clearly there's a mixture. She could be primarily Caucasian. She could be primarily African-American. Yeah. She's certainly some of both. Yeah, you know, and I think to me, that's why I always say she's such an interesting case study because she was so fair skinned that she absolutely could pass for white. She did. Uh, she, she and was she did on occasion. <laughs> yeah, and she did on occasion. She was light skinned and she always said, well, I have a certain colored, as in some sort of color, cast to my skin because there's American Indian blood. In the family. And the, and the thing that I find interesting, Jim, is that she likely could have gotten a pass. And yet she chose to assimilate to black culture at a time when it really wasn't that popular to be black. That's right. She was married four times, once before Abe, twice after him, after he died. And she married an African-American each time. She lived in black communities. She and Abe first lived in Harlem, and then they lived in the, I guess it was the, the black part of Newark. Oh, they, they had a pretty nice house and all of that. Yeah. I, but I think Newark was still pretty segregated in those days. Yeah. So. Well, I remember Don Newcomb well, talking about the house. Hmm. So, you know, yeah. for that time span, it was pretty majestic, you know, yeah. based on his description as a youngster going over to their place when she tried to sign him or in, in essence did sign him to his first contract with yeah. the Eagles. So I remember hearing him talk about, you know, he was wowed by that house that, that they had. Yeah. It was like a three-story brick house. I, I seen it when my, I, not from the inside or anything, but I drove by and took a look at it, obviously one of my research missions down there and a uh, big house, pretty nice place. Yeah. And and then she goes on to become really kind of a civil rights icon there in Newark. She was very proactive in pushing social agendas there in that Newark area. She was. She was um, active in the NAACP. She held a, a stop lynching day at the ballpark where they sold stop lynching buttons to raise money for the NAACP to fight lynch laws uh, or to not to fight them, to try to get them passed. Another thing she did that I found out that uh, after the war in Columbia, Tennessee, there was a so-called race riot, although the only people rioting were the white, some of the white population. But of course, a lot of blacks got elected. And the NAACP put together a legal team headed by Thurgood Marshall to go down and defend them very successfully, I might add. And EFA raised, uh, I think, 500 bucks for that, which is a lot of money in those days. Uh, we're talking about 1946 or seven, raised, raised 500 bucks for that and gave it to the NAACP for that project too. If you go back before they got involved in baseball, they're married, they're living in Harlem, and she's she's a society person. She did like yeah. society. Abe could have cared <laughs> less, but she liked it. And she's at a big dinner. Uh, uh, and there's talk about, well, you know, there was uh, department stores on 125th Street, which was the retail main drag of Harlem and pretty much still is. We're their main customers. We're their only customers, practically. But the only job a black person can get there is like a janitor or an elevator operator. How come we, our young women, for example, can't be sales clerks? 
So this group was formed, the Citizens Committee for Fair Play. They found a very well-known local pastor, John Howard Johnson of the St. Martin's Episcopal Church to be their president. And they started negotiating and Alpha got involved. She was, as usual, the secretary treasurer. She always had something to contribute besides just being around. And they started negotiating. They got nowhere. So they wound up picketing these stores and successfully. And they hired young African-American women as sales clerks. But during the negotiation process, she's there. With, she's an officer of this committee. She's there. And they're having butting their heads up against the wall with these department store magnets. And she says, you know, if you don't give these people, these young girls jobs, there's nothing for them to do but be housemaids and prostitutes. And the department store people were aghast. You can't, Mrs. Manley, you can't say things like that. Well, it's only the truth. That's sort of how she got <laughs> in baseball too, you know. I will say what's on my I know what I know what needs to be done. I will say what's on my mind and you don't have to like it, but as far as I'm concerned, it's the truth. So that particular citizens committee experience of hers, if you knew she was gonna go become a major figure in Negro League baseball, that would tell you just how she was gonna do it. Yeah. Now, she was extremely persuasive and very savvy. And, you know, she triggers or starts all of these efforts that made her so unique and beloved, absolutely beloved there in that Newark area. Oh, yes. Very popular in society as to working for the betterment of the community. The hospitals there were de facto segregated. In fact, the city, uh, New York City Hospital didn't have a black physician until the late 40s. So a fellow whose name I can't remember at the moment, who'd been a uh, colleague of Booker T. Washington, but lived in Newark, who's a medical man, started a black community hospital and called it the Booker T. Washington Community Hospital. And the Eagles played fundraisers every year for that hospital. There was a guy named John Borican, who you don't hear any, almost anything about these days because he died very young, but he was one of the top track and field guys of his day. And probably he'd be known probably as an Olympian and a national champion. He was that good, but he died in his 20s. But he, when he was still active, uh, there was a John Borican day at Rupert Stadium where the Eagles played. And it was just like, use the Eagles to boost the community in substantive ways like raising money for the hospital in figurative ways like here's a famous here's a famous guy a local new jersey african-american athlete we'll have a day for him so everyone will know who he is yeah and and her community mindedness was really exceptional but i don't want to undervalue or understate how she turned and grew into a tremendous baseball person. She understood talent and, and, and had some of the greatest talent to play in the Negro Leagues. The great Monty Irvin, who I know had great admiration for Effa Manley and her business practice, as he would say, she never missed a payday. And not no. every Negro League owner could say that. No. And and the owners that are respected most today and, and who lasted the longest were people like the Manleys who never missed the payday. She did all the, as you can imagine, did the contract negotiation in the spring. And she was really hard-nosed. She would say, you want another $200? I can remember after last July, you hardly won any games. And that was because the, as she wrote that to Len Hooker, she's, after July, you only won two games, and, and that was because the other pitchers were worse than you. <laughs> <laughs> but once you signed the contract and you hadn't been caught in spring training and you were still on the team, you got paid per that contract. Yeah. yeah. No, that, that's the thing that Monty impressed upon me and uh, Don Newcomb. Mm-hmm. And, and, and please, you know, for folks who will be hearing about Effa Manley for the first time, 
after Abe Manley dies and she now has full control of the team, we're talking about Hall of Famers who called the Newark Eagles home when we started to talk about the likes of Monty Irvin, Leon Day, Willie Wells, you know, these are Larry Doby. These are Hall of Famers that called the Newark Eagles home that she was the owner and was dealing with all of those great personalities and exceptional talent. They, they were the second best team in the Negro National League for all of the, of the 40s, really. They were constantly chasing the Homestead Grays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who yeah everybody were was chasing remarkable. the Homestead Grays. <laughs> it, remind, it reminds me of the white American League in the 50s when the Cleveland Indians were a great team, but except for one year, they always lost out to the Yankees. They were better than anybody. So, the, yeah, the, the Eagles were always right behind the Grays, and then in 1946, they passed them. They won. They won the Negro National League 10. Bennett, and won the World Series. The World Series. Now, yeah. you didn't have to remind me of that because they beat our Kansas City Monarchs well, to win. Did. The World they did, in fact. <laughs> That's a fact. Well, you know, I, I remember Buck talking about the fact that J.L. Wilkinson, he basically sold his interest in the Monarchs the year after Jackie takes the field with Brooklyn, 1948, because yeah. he, he already knew. Yeah. And he'd been involved in baseball for a long time. But this was his business. And, and so he knew that this was coming to an end. And, and uh, the other owners saw this handwriting on the wall as well. And so it, it was the beginning of progress in this country. But it clearly spelled the end of the Negro Leagues. And I remember Monty talking about the minute that Jackie took the field with Brooklyn, that fan base that had been so loyal to them yeah. in Newark left them almost instantly. Yep. Well, the thing with with Robinson when he was with the Dodgers is, I mean, the Dodgers played, not counting doubleheader days, they played 77 games in Brooklyn. Then they played 11 games at the Polo Grounds. And then they played 11 games in Philadelphia with, against the Phillies. The Eagles were surrounded <laughs> everywhere you turn. <laughs> Jackie Robinson was playing and people were going to see him and they weren't going to see the Eagles. Yeah. Well, the attendance, attendance just vanished. Yeah, and, and it was shortly thereafter that Mrs. Manley moved the club, I believe, to Houston. She sold it to some, actually, uh, one of J.B. Martin's brothers and another guy, and they moved the team, yeah. Yeah, they moved the team, and of course, they, they didn't survive. To, they didn't survive in Houston. didn't last long. And, and the other interesting side, and this is one of the things, we know that how slow the Yankees were to look at integration. They really didn't want to sign a black ball player and you mentioned Rupert Stadium, which was a Yankee-owned stadium. Yeah. So all that big crowd that the Eagles were drawing before integration, the Yankees were getting a percentage of that gate and Absolutely. likely all of the concession. And so now they were feeling the impact of integration, and I'm sure that didn't make them happy. No, Larry McPhail, I mean, is not publicly on record, but the, the letter or the writing sur- survives. He was... He was the president of the Yankees at that yes. time. They were renting Yankee Stadium, very profitably for them, very good for the Negro Leagues, too. They were renting Rupert Stadium. Um, in Over Newark. Newark. I don't know if it was Rupert Stadium at that point in Kansas City. It had two yeah, It was Blue games. Stadium at that time in Kansas Blue City. Stadium, yeah, but they, yeah, Blue the Yankees Stadium. owned it. And they were getting, Absolutely. They were, they were Absolutely. Under any name, they were collecting the rent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, McPhail, was, McPhail had absolutely... A branch rookie across the city is working hard undercover and then above cover to integrate the players anyway. And McPhail is just dug in his heels. I mean, this is terrible. It's a terrible idea. Terrible idea. Oh, oh, we're renting three of our ballparks to the black teams. If the black teams go away, we're not going to be able to rent our ballparks anymore. Well, Effa Manley, she fashioned a brilliant, groundbreaking career in the spirit of Olivia Taylor, the wife of C.I. Taylor, who ran that ball club after C.I. Taylor died in Indianapolis ABCs. Many Forbes who would take ownership of the Detroit Stars after Ted Raspberry buys the Monarchs and couldn't own two teams. But Effa Manley is by far the most notable, the most influential 
of all those women, but the fact that the Negro Leagues created opportunities that allowed women to take on those roles cannot be overlooked. It is tremendously significant, and I wholeheartedly believe that as we look at Kim's role now with the Marlins, we should reflect on that pioneering spirit of the Negro Leagues. Mr. Jim Overmeyer, it has been my absolute pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much for sharing and providing insight on the queen of the Negro Leagues. The book is available. The new version of the book is available at bookstores and every other place that you buy your books. Sir, thank you so much for being a part of Black Diamonds. I should mention that that, uh, the new version of the book has an excellent foreword by none other than Bob Kendrick, by the way. Oh, that old guy? (laughs) So thank you for that. (laughs) Jim, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Glad to be on your show. Coming up next week on Black Diamonds, a conversation about the Black Aces, Black pitchers in the major leagues to win 20 games or more in a major league season with my very special guest, David Price and CeCe Sabathia. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap Podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnio Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. SiriusXM Podcasts.